Welcome to No Wrong Answers Extra Credit. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. 2017 was, by all accounts, a crazy year in the news, and the way 2018 has started, it looks like we're not in for much of a break. Earlier this month, NPR education reporter Claudio Sanchez made four education predictions for 2018. You can find his full article at npr.org in the education section. From Betsy DeVos to the future of DACA, Sanchez wades boldly into the what-ifs, of course, as he acknowledges. If the past two years or so in news has taught us anything, it's that you can truly predict nothing. Still, we think his article is good food for thought as you get going in your spring semester. So we wanted to play you a conversation I recently had with Claudio Sanchez about his education predictions for 2018. A quick note, I talked with him before the recent government shutdown. Of course, that whole impasse is inextricably tied up with the debate over the fate of DACA recipients. So our conversation about that particular topic is uh, not flavored by these most recent events and the current tenuous state of DACA recipients. With that in mind, here's my conversation with Claudio Sanchez. Uh, well, Claudio Sanchez of NPR, thank you so much for uh, joining me to talk about your predictions for education in 2018. You have four of them here. Let's just run through them one by one. Uh, your first prediction, DACA will end. That's a pretty daunting prospect, I think, for a lot of students and teachers. Uh, Why do you say DACA will end in 2018? The bottom line, I think, and I still maintain that DACA will fade because this is an election year. And I think Congress, lawmakers uh, are pretty skeptical about, you know, running on any platform that says that illegal immigrants undocumented immigrants, DACA recipients, uh, should remain in this country because it's such a sensitive issue. Well, I mean, you say so as you say as much in your your piece written at NPR.org that um, um, it's because conservative lawmakers fear they'll look weak on immigration. Uh, contrast that with the predicted um, uh, reaction by the 200,000-some DACA students. Uh, if DACA does end, what will that mean for students, and what will that mean for the teachers who teach them? Well, we don't know exactly what that'll mean. I don't think anybody's predicting a mass deportation of these students. Um, even though you've seen some individual cases, uh, as you point out, you know there was about two hundred forty-one thousand DACA recipients enrolled in college. Uh, Fifty thousand of them are essentially right now technically deportable because they've not been able to renew their DACA permits. But nobody's chasing them around, although I was told uh, by some folks, some immigration uh, advocacy groups, that you know, on any given day that if uh, one of these people is detained for whatever reason, a traffic violation, they're deportable. I mean, they could be turned over to uh, immigration authorities and deported. Uh, we're not hearing about that, at least not on a large scale. But, yeah, I mean, down the road, that's why these folks are on pins and needles. They're just waiting to see or waiting for another shoe to drop, and waiting to see what Congress and the courts do. Some speculate that ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court might rule on this matter, and uh, that would pretty much be the end of it, and who knows how they will rule. Uh, So the message to most DACA recipients, Kyle, is that uh, they don't know what's going to happen, and that, uh, that insecurity is what really is making life difficult for them. And so, you know, again, it's way up in the air. Um, 
Your second prediction, I think, will be of a lot of interest to our teacher listeners. Um, You say U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos will step down in 2018. You admit in your piece that this is a leap, um, but you say that she will grow increasingly irrelevant and isolated. And because it's a midterm election year, President Trump will not um, fight her if she decides to leave. He'll be preoccupied with other things. Um, Betsy DeVos leaving the Education Department. Uh, how would you sum up her tenure so far? Um, I maintain that she will leave, you know, going out on a limb here. There is no specific or concrete evidence that she is ready to leave. I spent much of last year, 2017, at, at conferences and spending time with education, uh, state education officials. And my sense is that there is enormous amount of uh, disappointment in how Secretary DeVos has moved to reassure them, reassure states, that, you know, the new education law that replaced No Child Left Behind, the uh, uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, uh, ESSA, um, how it's going to really affect them. I mean, there's been a, a concern that despite the writing that, at least in the legislation, that states will be more free and flexible in, in doing what they think is right by kids and, by, uh, and for improving schools, you know, that the administration really has not been a leader or a guide in that respect. In fact, uh, one of the concerns has been that the administ- that uh, Ms. DeVos has rolled back lots of reassurances about how to treat uh, LGBT students, how to treat special ed kids, how to treat English language learners, and that by lifting some of the federal oversight of those things that, you know, the the civil rights community has con- has, has worried, and among them teachers, that the rights of these kids are at risk. Now, that unpopularity that I keep hearing about for the administration, at least for Secretary DeVos, is very clear. Um, But the question is, will she see this as a reason to move out? Because by saying that she is becoming more and more irrelevant, uh, I think it also speaks to the problem that she's had in persuading the administration and taking a lead in school reform, because there's been some degree of indifference or, you know, not a lot of clout that she's had with the Trump administration. Uh, again, that's insider stuff. And I remember early on at one meeting, Mr. Trump could not even remember what his secretary of education's name was. She's been accused, of course, of being more interested in privatizing public education in moving ahead with more aggressively on charter schools and helping um, private schools, private school tuition, and and then building up private school tuition. As, and as we know now by the tax bill that's been approved, you know, that's going to be a lot easier now. So she's not seen as an advocate of public education. That's the public that's the that's the public perception. Right. I mean, you, you brought up school choice. Is there any part of her putative agenda that she she could see progress on this year that she could make any kind of inroad on um, given some of the challenges that you've laid out? Well, I think the choice agenda is her biggest her biggest goal. But there's nothing I don't think there's nothing in her uh, agenda and there's little in terms of policy that reinforces or builds on some of the things that happened uh, during the Obama years by lifting, though, that federal oversight on many of these questions of how to improve failing schools, 
how to train better teachers. Um, you're pretty much leaving states to do this on their own with little or no guidance, let alone little or no money. Remember, there's a um, almost a, about a billion, a ten billion dollar cut in federal education spending that the administration proposed, and you know that's certainly not going to help schools that are struggling to uh, to not just you know keep their heads above water when it comes to funding, but to really focus on the kids who need that money and those resources most. So um, I, can't, I think the agenda, uh, the choice agenda, is an easy one because we have charter schools that are growing by leaps and bounds, and that's a state issue. States are the ones kind of dictating to what degree charter schools are free to compete with traditional public schools. And, you know, so that's an easy lift for the administration to support. Mm-hmm. The hard ones, the ones that require more resources and money, certainly from the feds, and at least a little bit more oversight to reassure people that poor kids, minority kids, are going to get what they need. I mean, that's a, a much heavier lift, and we're not seeing a lot of progress in that regard from the DeVos administration. Uh, number three on your list, higher education will dominate headlines. You say that for a number of reasons. Um, the student financial aid crisis will continue to be a big news story in 2018. The Republican tax overall um, affects um, student aid and, and um, college savings accounts in a number of ways, as well as the uh, continued fallout of the Me Too movement. You say that's going to move into higher education and spread to campuses where it's, it's already been a problem to a certain degree. Um, higher education will dominate headlines for all these reasons, you say. That's going to be a big deal this coming year. It is, and what I'm saying uh, and, and actually said was that the student financial aid crisis will worsen. There is now a report out, I believe, by the Brookings Institution that says that, you know, the, the student loan crisis um, is, is a lot worse than we've been thinking or thought in 2017. So there's growing evidence that, you know, uh, young students, young people are going to have a much, much harder time. Families are going to have a much harder time getting the money they need, borrowing or out-of-pocket to pay for what's admittedly a very uh, worrisome trend in, um, in tuition increases. States are not increasing their higher ed budgets. The feds are pretty much on the sidelines. Um, the Higher Education Act is supposed to be reauthorized, but again, there's been no real uh, discussion of how we can uh, create a, a, a better uh, support system for needy students in particular. So anyway, it doesn't look good. You know, the Mean Tube movement coming to campuses is, is really, it's been there for a while. We've, we've heard of all these stories over the years about sexual harassment. You know, so much of this has gone unnoticed, specifically cases of uh, male faculty uh, and sexual harassment when it comes to undergrads or graduate students, female students. And so, you know, I, I, I hate to predict this, but I think we're going to see more and more cases flagrant cases, and um, this is going to hit higher education hard. Um, I think also the affirmative action debate is not dead. I mean, the Supreme Court has essentially not uh, ruled, at least definitively, because of the Texas case uh, that has essentially allowed affirmative action to remain in place and diversity to still be a criteria, race to still be a criteria in college admissions. Um, But I think that that's going to rear its head as well, uh, only because of the climate in, in which we're in, Kyle, in which we've seen a lot of racial tension throughout this country, um, often because the president, you know, it has seldom backed down on the accusation 
uh, certainly or at least responded adequately to the accusation that many of his policies um, are anti-immigrant, anti-minority, anti-black, anti-Hispanic. And that climate, I think, contributes to this uh, lingering fear that college admissions and the use of race in college admissions is still going to be a big story in 2018. Yeah. And then your final prediction um, for education in 2018, closing the achievement gap between rich and poor, black and white, will hit a wall. You know that there has been some modest progress towards that in recent years, but you say that in 2018 it will hit a wall. Why? Well, all you have to do is look at the most recent uh, uh, report by the U.S. Civil Rights Commission on where we are on equity and on uh, the education of minority children, including minor- language minority kids in this country. And it's not a pretty picture. It, it, it's very dismal. Um, I think that it'll hit a wall because of all these other complications about funding, um, federal funding, state funding of public education in general, but specifically funding for targeted programs like Title I, uh, targeted programs at the state level that, you know, uh, that that have essentially said, look, we need to pay more attention and spend more time and energy and money on the kids who are, you know, most behind. And often these are minority kids, black and Hispanic kids in particular. Um, and remember, we're not just talking about, about black-white uh, uh, comparisons in terms of academic achievement. We're talking about uh, wealthy, affluent, and poor kids. I think that by far is a bigger problem because we've got lots of white poor kids in Appalachia, places like Kentucky and Tennessee and and West Virginia, for example, just to mention one region, where poor white kids and the gap between them and and more affluent white kids is is pretty big. Um, So, yes, it's in part an issue of race and class, um, but it's also an issue of whether, you know, schools on their own, can, without the kind of federal or state support, can move quickly to close that gap. And I don't think very many school districts have proven that they can without more resources. And you also know that schools themselves are becoming more segregated, um, both um, because of de facto reasons, but also because of of real efforts to actually go back and segregate schools. Uh, there's been a lot of news stories over the past year of of districts trying to um, jump out of larger districts and form their own districts. Well, I think that what takes over in many cases, although I don't think many school officials or school boards would school boards would admit it, is that it's more expensive to educate poor kids and minority kids who are falling behind. You know, bottom line is that school boards um, don't want to open their districts uh, to, let's say, more open enrollment uh, policies because they know that they're going to attract more kids who are in trouble. But there is a sense that, um, you know, that these systems are already struggling with their native uh, minority communities. I mean, I think that over the years, ever since the Supreme Court's Brown decision, there's been this reluctance on the part of more affluent school systems that are predominantly white um, to take in kids uh, from inner city school systems uh, and to give them a shot at uh, a better system. Uh, you know, that that just hasn't gone very far. You could argue that more and more affluent, uh, predominantly white systems are becoming minority systems. Uh, I think that all of that is in play, and the resegregation of public education that people like uh, 
by Gary Orfield at UCLA has written about is very much in place. And remember that charter schools have often been blamed for helping contribute to that resegregation, even though that takes us into yet another mm-hmm. uh, another tier of debate uh, in terms of why some of those schools are blamed for resegregating public education. Yeah, uh, maybe fodder for uh, predictions for 2019. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Claudio Sanchez with NPR's education team, thank you so much for sharing with us your your predictions for education in 2018. And let's hope that we see a better year despite my prediction. <laughs> well enough. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. That was my conversation with NPR education reporter Claudio Sanchez. Like No Wrong Answers at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to this extra credit, and see you next time. Thank you.